One of the first things that you have to do when you are discerning a call to ordain ministry in our denomination is to uh, submit a personal statement of faith uh, along with a spiritual autobiography to the Committee on Ministry. Uh, so when the time came, I submitted my paperwork along with my statement of faith. And for my personal statement of faith, I just wrote the Apostles' Creed and submitted it and didn't think anything more about it. A few weeks later, I heard back from the Committee on Ministry that my uh, application was not approved. Their reasoning was that my statement of faith wasn't personal. They wanted to know what I believed. So in response, I resubmitted the Apostles' Creed, but this time I included a brief essay uh, explaining uh, why it was that I really did believe the Apostles' Creed, that I didn't think I needed to add anything or take anything away from it. As you can imagine, they weren't satisfied <laughs> with my double down. And uh, I learned that until I wrote a personal statement of faith in my own words, that I would not be considered a candidate for ordination. Maybe you have uh, felt this way about the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you have thought uh, that it's, it's something written by other people for a different time in different words. And as a result, it's just not personal to you. As the theologian Ben Myers observes in his book on the Apostles' Creed, uh, we tend to be pretty suspicious about things that are just passed down to us. Uh, and we assume that the truest thing that we could say is something that we've made uh, up ourselves. And while I, I certainly think it's a, a good exercise from time to time to articulate in our own words what it is that, that we uh, believe, I think one risk that we run when we do that is we uh, might leave out things we don't like. We might affirm our belief in uh, the love of God and God's mercy and forgiveness and that one day God will make everything right again. But when it comes to things like judgment or sin or death, we might neglect to mention those things. Or we might leave out things that just seem impossible to believe. Take, for example, the line from the Apostles' Creed that we are examining this week, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Everything I know about how things work tells me this is not possible. And this isn't just because we modern people no longer believe that virgins can conceive. Like, that's pretty much never been a thing. Right? Uh, in response to the angel Gabriel's message, Mary replies, how can this be since I am a virgin? And here's what Gabriel says to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Every year around Christmas time, the New York Times columnist uh, Nick Kristoff publishes an interview with a, a public pastor or uh, a theologian or a, a professor, an author, uh, grilling them with questions 
uh, about the impossible things that Christians believe. And a couple of years ago, he interviewed uh, Christian author Philip Yancey. You might have seen it. Uh, when asked uh, if, if he thought it was important to believe in the virgin birth, Yancey replied this way. It's only a big deal if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, as most Christians do. Otherwise, you have a different mystery. How did the child of two simple villagers end up changing history more than anyone before or since? His reply was a, a bit tongue-in-cheek, as you can tell, but he's making, I think, a profound point about our, the nature of our faith. It's, it's not really up to us to mix and to match our beliefs based upon what we think is possible. We'll end up with a completely different story if we do that. Faith believes the impossible. That's like kind of the whole point. So uh, I'm not going to try to convince you how possible it is uh, that, that Mary as a virgin uh, conceived and delivered uh, the baby Jesus. But I am going to share two things I think believing the impossible will give you. And the first is humility. And I don't mean by this uh, feeling less or badly about yourself. I mean the kind of humility that you experience, that you feel when you take in uh, the beauty of a sunset or the view from a mountain peak after a long hike or how you feel maybe when you swim in the ocean or hold your child in your arms for the first time or the humility you feel when you feel deeply loved by someone despite yourself. The kind of humility that lets you in on the secret that the world is so much bigger than you realized, that frees you from the need to be in control or at the center of it all. Humility opens us up to mystery and uh, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but, the more, but, but more meaning, the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. To believe in a God that accomplishes the impossible is to, is to make a practice of admitting that there's so much more going on in the world than we can see, than we can do, or we can even imagine. The second thing that believing the impossible will give to you is hope. And more specifically, hope for change. I heard someone say recently that change isn't hard. Change is impossible. And so when it occurs, and, and it happens all the time, it happens uh, in your life, it happens in my life. So when change happens, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. So then who gets the credit? This might seem like a, a bold claim at first. I mean, we make changes to our lives all the time, right? We can move to a different city or a different neighborhood. We can uh, change our diets. We can adjust our lifestyle here and there. We may even find that we change our mind from time to time. But if we take a step back, we might discover how true this claim is when we think about uh, and consider the big changes, the meaningful changes that we hope to make in our lives and in the world around us. I mean, if you've ever tried to uh, change something about your marriage that's really hard or change the way you parent uh, your kids, if you've ever been uh, addicted to something and you just can't kick it, if you've ever worked on behalf of change in your community for uh, justice or for progress, 
or if you've ever just kind of come to the end of yourself and needed a miracle, then you know just how impossible change can feel. Miracles like the virgin birth are what the gospel writers call signs. They signify uh, something bigger even than the miracle itself. They remind us of God's intention to renew creation and ultimately to save us. They invite us to believe that the situations that we find impossible are exactly what we can expect to find God. Eventually, I got my act together <laughs> and I wrote a personal statement of, of faith. And I was surprised and I'll be honest, a little embarrassed when I looked back at that statement of faith this week to find that though I had affirmed uh, my belief in the incarnation and used that language, I had not explicitly named the virgin birth, though I believed it then and I believe it now, which tells you a couple of things. First, I shouldn't be in charge of creating any creeds for the future of the church to rely upon. And second, it is so tempting, it is so tempting to tame our language of faith into the possible. My friends, let us resist that temptation because it's belief in the impossible that saves us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.